You're listening to audio from Harvest Bible Chapel, Philadelphia, where we believe in preaching the authoritative power of God's Word each and every week. For more content and information about our church, visit harvestphiladelphia.org. Well, good morning. Great to see you guys. Go ahead and grab a copy of God's Word and open up to Colossians chapter 1 or 2, actually, this morning, as we be or pick up, resume our series Embracing the Supremacy of Jesus Christ. Now, up to this point, we've defined supremacy as that person or thing who, in your heart or mind, surpasses everything else in status, power, and authority. In other words, it's that person or that thing in life that you give permission to have authority over you. Now, in chapter one, Paul has been arguing that you should be willing to confidently surrender uh, the supremacy of your life to Jesus Christ because he is the creator of the universe. He's the head of the church, and he is the one that, who uh, came out of heaven to rescue you out of the concentration camp of sin and to bring you into a new life in Christ. Now, as we enter into chapter two, Paul is issuing, like a grandfather, a bit of a warning that there are rip currents, so to speak, of false teaching that surrounded the Colossians that threatened to drag them away from Christ and drown their confidence in his supremacy. Now, we see that in chapter 2 in, first of all, we see it in verse 4, and it's like a thread that goes throughout chapter 2. It says here in verse 4, I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. If you go to verse 8, says something similar, see to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition and according to the elemental spirits of the world, not according to Christ. Even if you jump down to verse 16, it says, therefore let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food or drink or with regard to festivals or new moons or Sabbaths. You see, the thread throughout chapter 2 is this undercurrent of false teaching, which we're going to unpack next week. Now, I don't know if you're anything like me, but we are a beach family. We love the beach. Anybody else out there who loves the beach? And so every summer, we jump into our van. We drive the 1,000-plus miles, 18 to 20 hours in a van, all six of us, down to Florida so that we can join the rest of our family in the Gulf of Mexico. But one of the things, amen. And one of the things that we have learned is when we get to the beach, one of the first things we have to do is we have to look for rip currents. We have small children, and if you don't know what a rip current is, is as all of that water comes in, it has to find a place to go back out, and usually it funnels in a stream called a rip current. And if you've never stood in a rip current, two or three feet of water is enough to almost pull out a full-grown man. And the challenge with rip currents, of course, is they are subtle. They're hard to see. They're under the water, easy to miss, and they're incredibly deadly. People die every year getting sucked out to sea, trying to fight against the rip current, the tide, and they drown because they couldn't see the signs. And what Paul is doing here is he's writing to the Colossians and he's warning them. There are rip currents of false teaching in our culture and in your culture, Colossians, that are threatening to drag you out to sea and drown you in a sea of despair and delusion. And make no mistake about it, church, that hasn't changed to this day. We still have an enemy, Satan, who is a roaring lion seeking to devour your faith. Do you believe that? 
He wants to drown your confidence in Christ. His goal is to drag you out to sea through false teaching to drown your confidence in Christ or at least weaken it enough so that you might trust Jesus for your eternity, but you won't trust him for your day to day. And so Paul is writing to this group of young believers, kind of like a a loving grandparent, and he is saying this, love, knowledge, and gratitude. In this text, love, knowledge, and gratitude are the things that will help keep you from getting sucked out into an ocean of delusion and despair. I'm going to pick it up in verse 1, just follow along with me as I read aloud. It says in verse 1, For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea, and for all who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, and whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Now I say this in order that no one may delude you from plausible arguments, for though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted, built up in him, and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. Let's pray. Father, this morning as we come to this text, Father, would you open our eyes to see and behold wonderful things in your word? Would you open our ears to hear your voice behind the human messenger? And God, would you open our hearts to respond in faith and to step forward in trust? And Father, to fight against the current of false teaching that we see in our culture, we pray in Jesus' wonderful name, amen. Well, Paul says here in the text, the first way to protect yourself against and protect your faith against the rip current of false teaching is, first of all, love. We find this in verse 1, for I want you to know, verse 1, for I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those in Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face. Now, a little bit of context, the Colossians have never actually met Paul. In fact, we find out in chapter 1, verse 7, that it was a man named Epaphras who traveled from Colossae to Ephesus, several hundred miles away, to hear Paul. And as he was hearing Paul preach the good news of Jesus, the story of Jesus, the life, death, burial, resurrection, and imminent return of Jesus, this man named Epaphras was radically transformed. His life was turned upside down, inside out. He was a new creation. He was born again. What was spiritually dead became alive. And so as he left Ephesus, he took this newfound faith in Jesus Christ, the gospel with him, back to Hierapolis, back to Laodicea, and to Colossae, and he began sharing it. And as he began sharing this good news, this gospel with people in these different cities, lives were changed, souls were saved, and churches began. And so Paul now is writing to this group of spiritual grandchildren. He has never met them, but he met Epaphras, led him to Christ. Epaphras went back and led all of these people to Christ. And now Paul is writing to his spiritual grandchildren. And I pray that all of us one day would have spiritual grandchildren in the Lord. Amen? 
And so Paul is writing, that is why he cares so deeply. And he says here in the text, I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you. What is the struggle that Paul is experiencing here in the text? Well, we know that Paul is currently in a prison cell in Rome. Archaeologists have actually unearthed the likely um, prison cell that um, Paul was held in in Rome. They call it the Tullianum prison cell. And you would know if you see pictures of this prison cell that this is no (laughs) um, country club, so to speak. It's dank, dark, and dirty. It is not a place of rest and ease and comfort. It is a place of hardship. And Paul is not in this prison cell because he was a criminal. He's not there because he was a thief or he had killed somebody or he had committed insurrection. Why was Paul in this prison cell? For proclaiming the gospel. In other words, Paul was willing to struggle on the Colossians' behalf. He was willing to endure a prison cell, a dark, dank, nasty prison cell for the sake of the gospel because it was the gospel that made Paul a dead man alive. And he knew that in sharing this gospel that would put him in prison, it would make other spiritually dead people alive in Christ. And so he was willing to give his life for this message, this gospel that was able to take bitter people and make them forgiving, to take angry people and help them find peace, to take broken marriages that seem on the brink of disaster and make them thrive again. This gospel that is able to turn a gossip into a trustworthy person, to set a captive free, to take a selfish person and turn them into a sacrificial person who's willing to sit in a prison cell for the message that sets people free of whom he's never even met. Church, this is what love looks like. This is what love is a willingness to give our lives for people that we've never met without any expectation of return. Is that love? And that is what the gospel produces in the heart of a man who's been truly transformed by Christ. And so he writes here in these verses, this man who has loved the Colossians well and though he has never met them, And he says, there's two reasons why I'm writing to you and telling you about my struggle for you. And he says it in verse two. Verse two, he first says, that your hearts may be encouraged. That word in the text literally means to be comforted. And the reason why he says that is because the Colossians in this point in their life were under a lot of pressure from every side in their culture to give up in their newfound faith in Christ. There were mystical polytheists on one side and oppressive legalists on the other side. We're gonna get into that next week. But they were pressing in on these believers and telling them that their newfound faith in Jesus was ridiculous, it was wrong, it was foolish, it was silly, it was something not worth being committed to, not worth giving their life to, not worth sacrificing for, and they should give up on it altogether. Do we still experience that today? And here's the interesting thing about this. 
these were not faceless adversaries that the Colossians were facing. Their adversaries were their families and their friends, their co-workers, their neighbors. And they were not fans of their newfound faith in Jesus Christ. These were people whom they loved that mocked them and shamed them for following Christ. Many of them took away their employment and their financial stability. Many of them were probably ostracized from their families for standing for Jesus Christ. Can any of us relate? And so these Colossians who had committed to following Jesus with their lives had paid a hefty price. And so Paul writes here in this text in verse 2, he says, that your hearts may encourage. Paul is reading in. He's, he's writing to these spiritual grandchildren in the faith with a heart full of love, and he's telling them, you're not alone. If you're struggling because of your faith in Christ, if your struggle in this world is specifically because you follow Jesus, he's telling you, you're not alone. You do not struggle alone. It's almost like he's writing to us and telling us, I see you, I understand your struggle, and I struggle with you. As you were there in Colossae, as you were there in King of Prussia, as you were there in Wayne, as you were there in Norristown, as you are wherever you are in your life, and you struggle because of your faith in Jesus Christ, Paul is telling you, you are not alone. You do not struggle alone because we struggle with you. Not only that, Jesus struggles with you because he experienced even worse struggle than we did. Amen? But I wonder, do we know each other well enough to know one another's struggles? Are we connected enough as a church to be able to genuinely and profoundly encourage one another in the Lord in the midst of our struggles? Or... Are we more like Facebook church than we realize? I, I, want, I want relationship with you, <clears throat> but I don't want it to cost me too much. So our relationship becomes so superficial that I just click a like button and tell you, hey, I'm praying for you, and I move on with my life. I'm not willing to enter into your struggle. I'm not willing to share your struggle. I'm not willing to shoulder your burden with you and be with you in the midst of your struggle. I'm just willing to tell you, like a like button, I will pray for you. A church, we need to be a church that's built on love, and that means we need to be willing to enter into one another's struggles just like, like Paul did with the Colossians. And he says, when we do that, when we're willing to enter into one another's struggles and go beyond the Facebook like, I will pray with you, to I'm going to struggle with you, here's what happens. Purpose number two, verse two, he says, that their hearts may be encouraged being knit together in love. There is something about our mutual struggle for Christ and when we enter into our struggle with one another that knits our hearts together like a beautiful tapestry. I remember hearing years ago uh, the story of um, some of the details have, I've lost in my mind. It was either an MI, M- MRI tech or an x-ray tech, I'm not sure, but he worked with cancer patients. And he would take them into this, I, I think it was an x-ray room or an MRI room. 
And he would give them this really thick dye, this nasty, um, nauseating dye that they had to drink in order to take the imagery. Are we tracking? Are you with me? Does that make sense? I can't remember the details. Sorry if uh, some of you uh, medical professionals are out there like, that's not how that works. <laughs> not really the point of the story. But he did this, and he gave them, and, and he would always say, you know, th- these are people that are struggling, they're suffering, they're dealing with cancer, but they would always they would take it, and it would just, they, would, they would always just struggle through drinking the dives, this big, nasty stuff. I've had to drink it too. It's nasty. And he would always think in, my, in his mind, in his heart, just hurry up. Just, I want to get to my day. I want to get this done. I want to get it over with you. Just please drink it and get it done so I can get about my day. He had no compassion until one day he got sick and he got cancer and he had to go and get the same thing done and had to drink the same cup. And all of a sudden in his life, his struggle that he shared with other people who struggled created compassion and love in his heart for the people that he once was so annoyed with. Do you see how that works? When we struggle together for Christ, it knits us together. At church, we might be all different. We might be from different, might be different sizes and shapes, backgrounds, experiences, different preferences. But at the end of the day, God is knitting together a beautiful tapestry through the thread of our devotion to Christ and our mutual struggle in him. But church, we have to know each other's struggles. We have to be willing to enter into each other's struggles because without love, we will never find that our hearts are truly knit together in Christ. And Paul says here in the text, especially in the context, the first thing that protects us as a church from getting drugged out by the rip current of false teaching is this thing called love because when we're knit together, can I borrow you for a second, Ryan? Bevin, come, I need Bevin because he's huge. Come on up. When we're, when we're knit together. Wait, what are you saying about me? When, you're, you're, you're not as big as him. That's what I'm saying. When we're knit together and all of a sudden Ryan's getting pulled out, he has, we, he has someone to hold on to him because we love him, because we care about him. And because when we see that something is affecting him, that's pulling him out into the ocean of despair and delusion, I am connected to him because I've loved and I've shared and I've entered into his struggle and I can pull him back and keep him safe. Do you see how love works? Church, thank you guys. The first thing that we must do to fight against the rip current of false teaching is we must love. Second of all, we must have knowledge. Second way we protect our faith from the rip current of false teaching is through knowledge. We pick this up in chapter 2, verse 2. It says this, for their hearts, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love. And here it is, to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, and whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And I say this in order that, here's why he's saying it all. He's talking about love. He's talking about knowledge. I say this, that no one may be deluded, be pulled out by this rip current of plausible arguments that would deny Jesus Christ and ruin our faith. And so what Paul here is saying in the text is he's saying this. When God knits our hearts together in love and unity, the result is not only stronger affection for one another, but also stronger understanding of the Lord. Look back at what it says. He says, Paul's goal in verse 2 
is to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ. The goal is full assurance. The goal is that in your life, you would never doubt, that you would never waver, that you would never have confusion in your faith, that you would never experience delusion. Wouldn't that be a wonderful thing if we all reached that place? Amen? All God's people said, amen? Okay. Full assurance of understanding is the goal of the mysteries of God in Christ. This is heady stuff. This is like the top shelf of Christianity. And here's why this is important. Because this knowledge that Paul is talking about, this treasure chest that we are striving to achieve and unlock and get the wisdom of Christ, this knowledge is what empowers us to detect the undercurrents of false teaching in our culture. Are you with me? Are you with me? Here's why this is so important, because we still have this false teaching in our culture today. And you want to know something? I saw it in my living room yesterday watching a children's movie. We were sitting in our, um, uh, usually on Saturday afternoons, I I just try to to not work. I try to shut everything off and and just relax with the family. And so I was laying on the couch, I think just playing on my uh, iPad, and my kids were watching this movie called Smallfoot. It's this cute little movie about um, Bigfoots and like a whole colony of big feet. I don't know what you call them, plural, but big feet, Sasquatches. And, and um, their entire society had been built up on these tablets of stone given from someone on high with commandments of how to build their culture. I'm like, okay, that's interesting. Maybe it's a parable of some kind. But I never really paid attention to it until I noticed one of the characters was named Nietzsche. Now, if you don't know who Nietzsche is, he was one of the uh, Enlightenment philosophers who was diametrically opposed to religion and specifically Christianity, who declared, he's one of the first modern philosophers to declare, God is dead. Now, this is in a children's movie, and as I hear this name, Nietzsche, my ears perk up. I'm like, that's a weird name to give a character in a children's movie unless you have a purpose behind it. And then all of a sudden, this character named Nietzsche starts saying, well, you know, the problem with these stone tablets is that you've never even met the person that actually gave them to you. And I think there's some things that are wrong in the stone tablets. And that means if there's one thing wrong in the stone tablets, the whole thing is a lie. And you can't believe any of it. You should just free your mind and go out and find truth because the truth is out there. It's not written on stone tablets. I'm just like, oh, my word. That's the exact argument that people use to discredit the Bible. Now, my kids are hearing all of this. Now, they're not making a direct attack on the Bible, but what the culture is doing, and you better believe that Satan's behind that, is that he is conditioning my children to the argument so that when they get to the day where they're like, I'm not so sure about this thing, they hear that argument because they've been hearing it their whole lives and all of a sudden it clicks and, oh, well, if there's any apparent contradictions in the book, there can't be a plausible explanation for any of the contradiction. Therefore, it must be wrong. And if it's wrong and that one part, the whole thing must be wrong. Throw it out. Are we tracking? That's why we need this knowledge. 
We need this knowledge to be able to identify those things in the culture because you better believe I'm not going to let my kids watch that movie again. And I'm going to start paying attention to these movies a lot more carefully because Frozen, oh man, that self-actualization stuff is all over Frozen. So how do we reach then this treasure trove of wisdom? How do we that will protect us from delusion and deception? What is the ladder that we must climb to attain uh, the riches of knowledge and wisdom in Christ? What, what do we do? Do we, just, do we just go to church more? We just just add another Bible study to, to, to your week, right? That's all you got to do, just to get the knowledge. Anybody? Um, read more theology books. Um, listen to more podcasts by great thinkers. Um, I know if you're super spiritual, go to seminary, right? Is this the solution? All of these are well and good, and I have devoted my life to pursuing these things, but they are not the end all, amen? And how do we know that? Because we have watched pastors like Josh Harris who have devoted their lives to study of the scriptures and seminary education, who have completely abandoned the faith in Christ. So again, I ask, what is the ladder that will help us to reach the knowledge that protects us? We'll look at the context. The ladder that we climb to achieve this knowledge is there in verse 2, that your hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, so that you can reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom is hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. The latter that you climb to reach the knowledge that protects you from false teaching is love. And all God's people said, because I know some of you are out there right now, you're thinking, some of you are amen, and you're with me, but some of you are like, what? Listen to what John Piper says. This is the one, John Piper is almost always right. <laughs> I've never found him to be wrong. But here's what he says about this text. He says, the great, this is the, this is, I can't read my handwriting. This is one of the great and strange facts of Christianity, that a deep and confident understanding of Christ, which guards and protects us from the rip current of false teaching, comes not merely from thinking, but from thinking combined with loving. The way we get confident understanding of the mysteries of God, namely Jesus Christ, the treasure chest of wisdom, is to have our hearts knit together in love with other believers. The deepest and loftiest and most certain insights into the character of God that protect and preserve us come into heads that are attached to hearts. Church, you can strive your whole life to attain the riches and knowledge of Jesus Christ and to unlock the treasure chest of wisdom But if you do it without love, love for God and love for one another, you will ultimately end up using that knowledge for your own sinful self-interest. You cannot pursue knowledge without love. 
And those two things are the things that will help guard us from the rip current of false teaching in our lives. The love that we have for one another and God, the knowledge that we experience in Christ. But then here's the final thing. He says, the final way to protect our faith from the rip current of false teaching is finally gratitude. Found this in verses six and seven. Therefore, as you receive Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted, built up in him, and established in the faith, just as you were taught. And look at what it says, abounding in thanksgiving. Now, here's why I say gratitude is the point of these verses, because all of these other adjectives, walk, rooted, built up, established, all of these in the Greek are passive voices. They aren't something that you do. There's something that happens to you. But the one thing that you are responsible to do, the one present active imperative verb is that of abounding in thanksgiving. In other words, Paul is picturing a bubbling fountain, your heart, which is a bubbling fountain overflowing with gratitude. And here's why that's important. Those who bubble with gratitude, whose hearts overflow with gratitude for what God has already done and what God is yet to do, they are not easy prey for delusion and deception. They are not easy prey for anxiety and doubt. That is why it is almost impossible to find a grumpy person, a grateful person who is simultaneously grumpy. They are very hard to find. And so some of us who are here this morning, you might be thinking to yourself, wow, I am kind of a grumpy person. And can I just, full disclosure, this is my biggest area of struggle in my life. I call myself a realist, but I'm kind of a pessimist at times. And I, I just, I see, I see the hole in the ship rather than the ship. And, and I pick on the hole rather than glorying in the ship. You know what I'm talking about? I'm that person. And so I have in my life wrestled and struggled with this piece. But the reality is, as Paul is saying, just like green leaves on a tree are the, are the proof of health. Gratitude is the proof of a healthy believer. And so you might be wondering, well, what do I have to be thankful for? You don't know what's going on in my life. You don't know how much I'm struggling with. You don't know what's going on, what I'm dealing with. No, I don't. But I can tell you this, no matter where you're at, what's going on, where you've been, what you've done, you can be grateful in Jesus Christ. Now, here's a couple of reasons why he gives us four. Are you ready for them? Number one, look at this. Therefore, as you receive Christ Jesus, so walk in him. Check that out. He wants to walk with you. Of the 7.5 billion people on the face of the planet, God, our God, in Jesus Christ, wants to have a relationship with you. That's awesome. I mean, one of the greatest joys and privileges of my life in having four girls is that I get to go out and have all of these daddy-daughter dates with my kiddos. It is awesome. If you have a girl and you know what that's like, dad, so go out and just spend time with your daughter and to pour in and share your heart and have this relationship and to give her your undivided attention and laugh. And so what I'll do, I, we go out to Shake Shack or we'll go out to, where do we go? Dairy Queen. Yeah, we go out to Dairy Queen all the time. We go to Best Buy. That's more for me. <laughs> and, and we... And then we go to the Tesla store all the time. My girls always want to go to the Tesla store. And we just have fun enjoying each other. And that's what God wants with you. He wants to spend time with you. 
He wants relationship with you. And one of the cool things right now, I'm going with two other guys here in the church, with Sherwin, with David Tice. I'm going through just a walk through the Bible in a year program, and that engages me in my walk with the Lord. And so this morning as I was walking with him, I was just reading through Noah, and Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generations. He walked with God. And so, God, I want to be known as a man. (laughs) After the day I die, I want to be able to, people just look back and like, yeah, he had a walk with God. He had a thing with God. He had a relationship with God. I love that. Can you be thankful for that today? And number two, here's the second thing. We're rooted in Christ. We're rooted in Christ. In agriculture, there's a term called propagation where you can actually take a, a branch. It can be off a living tree, but it also could be off a dying tree. You take that branch, you cut it off, and you can put it next to, plant it down in soil next to um, a flourishing uh, water source. And that branch will actually grow its own roots and develop into its own tree just out of a branch. Now, what is cool about that and what is cool about this word rooted is that Jesus Christ has cut you off from the tree of sin and death and has planted you next to a river of life in him so that you are always in your soul drawing up the nourishment that your heart and your soul needs so that you will never be malnourished and dissatisfied in life, that you will always find your satisfaction and joy and hope and peace and contentment in Jesus. It's always there. When you are, am I preaching? Is that amen? That's something that I'm thankful for. There are pleasures in his presence, fullness of joy. Uh, look at what else he says here in the text, built up. Uh, this is a, uh, a, an architectural term, it just references a building, but I think that this is uh, something that we can rejoice in, that you are God's construction project and you are not complete. But here's the thing, God will never quit on you. God will never quit on you. Let that sink in. People may give up on you. People may fail you. But God will never quit on you until you cross the faith finish line and step into eternity with him. He will never quit building you into the image of his son. And number four, he says here in this text, established in the faith. That literally means strengthened. That is that God will never ask you to do something that he will not provide the strength to accomplish. He will never ask you, go share your faith, good luck. Go stand for Christ in the workplace where you're gonna get mocked, good luck. Go and try to stand for something good in this culture and and stand for the political, sorry, I got, I'm not gonna go that direction. (laughs) Stand for the Lord in the context of a culture that's not going a good direction. Stand and do it in my strength. And I will give you the strength that you need. I see gratitude is what protects us from the undercurrent of doubt and despair. Do we have more than enough to be thankful for, church? So let me ask you, are you bubbling over with gratitude right now? Are you bubbling over with gratitude right now? Are you bubbling over with attitude? Do you come like a rain cloud, or rain cloud into the throne room of heaven 
with all your gripes and complaints entitled because you don't feel that God has given you what you deserve? Or do you come in just thankful and grateful for all that he's done and all he's promised to do? You see, those who bubble with gratitude for what God has already done and what God has yet to do have little room for attitude in their hearts. They're not easy prey to delusion and to deception. They're not easy prey to anxiety and to doubt. That is why a grateful person is rarely a grumpy person. And the third protective covering against the rip current of false teaching is not just love, it's not just knowledge. Church, it is gratitude. So next week, what we're going to do is we're going to actually get into the specific teachings of false teaching that we see in the text just to kind of whet your appetite. Look at verse 8. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human traditions, according to the elemental spirits of Christ and uh, world and not according to Christ. What does all of that mean? We're going to get into that next week. But until then, let me ask you this. Where are you vulnerable right now? Where do you feel the rip current of the culture of false teaching tugging at your feet? Do you need to grow in love? Do you need to grow in knowledge? Do you need to grow in gratitude to resist the rip current? Father, I pray, God, that as we end here today, Lord, by faith, we would respond to you appropriately. God, maybe for some of us, we need to grow in our love for other people, to be willing to step into the struggle of others, even with our own struggles, be willing to step into the struggles of others and shoulder those with people. Father, maybe for some of us, we, we, we do need to pursue greater knowledge. And Father, as we pursue greater knowledge in the Lord, in you, in your word, as we study, God, help us never to forget that the ladder to greater knowledge comes through love. Maybe some of us are here today and frankly, we just don't have a whole lot to be grateful for. God, I pray that you would remind us from this text, we have so much to be thankful for. So, Father, when we enter into your throne room, help us not to enter with attitude, but just simply gratitude. So, Father, would you identify for all of us what are our areas of vulnerability and help us to respond in faith to your son, Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this audio from Harvest Bible Chapel, Philadelphia. For more audio, content, and information about our church, visit harvestphiladelphia.org.